Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. As I'm firing the kiln, the studio is off limits for a day and a half, so I thought I would take this opportunity to record a podcast. Welcome to everybody who's dropping by, whether you're a long-term listener or a new one. You are very welcome in my corner of the online world. For any newcomers, my name is Meg and I live in London in the UK. I'm a maker, ceramicist, writer and generally curious soul. In these podcasts, I talk about my making life in the widest meaning of that term. I share what I'm making, but I also mull over the whys and wherefores of my projects, materials and processes. And I like to tease out some of the environmental, ethical and psychological considerations involved in my creative practice. Thank you for all your comments and feedback on the last episode, in particular on my knicker sewing exploits. And also a really heartfelt thank you to everybody who ordered issue 2 of the Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet pamphlet. I really appreciate every single order and enjoy including a handwritten thank you note, even if RSI means my handwriting is more scrawly than normal. How are you keeping? I hope you're managing to stay safe and well and that if you're struggling that you have access to the support you need. Here in the UK we've seen a significant relaxation of Covid restrictions but life has not changed so much in practice for me, partly due to a healthy dose of caution but mostly because life pre-Covid involved careful pacing of energy and activities. It is nice to be able to go swimming again though and I have enjoyed popping into a haberdashery to match thread to fabric rather than taking a punt online. So what do I have in store today for episode 26? There hasn't been that much knitting recently due to a pesky RSI problem in my elbow but I have been working on a sock knit with a twist. I also have two practical sewing projects to share as well as a bathroom concoction. As always, anything I mention on the podcast will be in the show notes, which you can find at mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. And between episodes, you can catch up with me on Instagram as mrsmcuriositycabinet, and that's with an underscore between each word. A few months ago, I talked about knitting leg warmers as part of Operation Chillblain and how it piqued my desire to add some long socks to my winter wardrobe. As well as enjoying wool against my calves, I realised that long socks might not be the insurmountable knit I thought they were. As I haven't worn long socks for over 30 years though, I knew I would have to give some careful thought to the pattern and material. I have relatively short legs but quite heavy calves so I knew I wanted to work with a toe up design or even a cuff down pattern that would work when knit from the toe up. For non-knitters, cuff down or toe up sock knitting means exactly what it sounds like. The process of turning the heel doesn't impact on the decorative element of the sock, rather the issue is picking a pattern that still makes sense when worked bottom up as inverting the direction of knitting can sometimes change the appearance of a design. My preferred designs for socks are lacy ones, but I knew I would need a subtle lace pattern that A would easily incorporate the increases that I need to accommodate the calves, and B would do so in such a way that they wouldn't emphasise my heavy calves. 
My first thought was to go for a lace pattern that is worked over a very small number of stitches so that the new pattern repeats can be incorporated within a handful of increase rounds. But then I stumbled across a delightful pattern called Salvia by Sabine Frisch. This pattern has a central lace panel running down the front, which involves cables and lace repeats that produce a row of stylized leaves. But the side and the back of the socks are knit in plain stocking stitch, in which the calf increases are discreetly worked. And the whole thing is topped off with a long band of 2x2 two two ribbing to keep the sock up. I also gave a lot of thought about the yarn. I enjoyed knitting and wearing the leg warmers because they are made of the kind of wool I really like. Wool that has body but is also bouncy and lofty. Bouncy and lofty are however not typically the words we think of for yarns that are suitable for socks, particularly not nylon free sock yarns. Generally, yarns suitable for socks have a pretty tight twist so the sock can stand up to the wear and tear on the foot. This is absolutely fine when knitting a pair of short socks, but I knew that I would find knitting long socks in a highly twisted wool an absolute chore. I was mulling over the possible yarns I had in my wool pantry, and then the blindingly obvious hit me. What if I knit from the toe to the top of the heel or the low ankle area in a yarn suitable for socks, and switch to the kind of wool I like knitting and wearing for the calves and ribbing? I had no idea how viable this might be, but why not experiment? Isn't that one of the joys of making things for ourselves? We can make informed decisions based on our knowledge of materials, our experience and preferences, rather than just sticking with conventions shaped for the convenience of mass production. So I played with the idea a bit longer. Obviously I would need to pick yarns that produce a fabric of similar tension on small needles. Also, I would have to accept that there would likely be a slight colour jog as matching up colours precisely is hard, especially when mixing yarn blends. As it happens, I managed to avoid the second issue by picking the most knitter-unfriendly colour possible. That's right, black. I know, I must have been mad, but there was a sort of method to my madness. Although I don't generally wear black these days, I do favour black tights under my brown garments. I'll come back to the issue of tights later, but long black socks would definitely fit into my autumn and winter wardrobe, particularly as dark brown sock-friendly wool is proving to be as hard to find as deep chocolate brown tights were. Also, strategically, from the perspective of testing and profiling a proof-of-concept project, I generally favour working towards something that looks or feels familiar, rather than it being completely off the wall. Finally, I knew I had half a ball of black West Yorkshire Spinner's signature four-ply deep in my wool pantry, and I knew where I could get my hands on some black wool with a similar gauge and with a handle I really enjoyed. The pesky bout of repetitive strain injury meant I took this project very steadily, knitting no more than one twenty-row repeat per day, if that. And I'll admit, the first part of each sock, until after the heel turn, was a slog. Not so much because of the black yarn, although knitting that on two and a quarter or US1 DPNs was no fun, but rather because the West Yorkshire Spinner yarn is a superwash wool nylon blend. And while it definitely has a more grippy woolen feel than many superwash sock yarns, it reminded me why I'm so eager to find non superwash nylon free wools. 
The yarn and slowly emerging sock between my fingers just felt very squeaky and plasticky to me. Once I was about an inch above the heel flap, I switched to Baram U's Pip Wool Blend, which I've knit with before and love. Pip is a British wool blend that was designed for colour work, so it has a grippy, dry feel in the hand. It comes in 25 gram balls of 116 metres or 126 yards, so it's a fine four-ply or fingering weight. And it is a worsted spun yarn. As much as I love woolen spun yarns, I thought it would make sense to go with a worsted wool for the legs of my socks for the extra strength. For completeness, this wool currently costs £3.50 per ball, so on a par with something like Jameson's Spindrift. Pip is actually currently hard to come by due to the impact of COVID on mill capacity, but I understand from Baram U that it should be available again later this summer if anybody wants to check it out. As I said, I've knit with this wool before and love both the feel of it and the fabric it creates. Although Pip was designed for colour work, I think it produces good stitch definition in lace knitting. Not uber-refined silky lace, but rather no-nonsense lace reminiscent of vintage knitwear. I'm not going to pretend it's the softest wool in the world. I have knit a shawl in this wool, which I happily wear against my neck, but I can see that due to its dry hand, it may be a bit too much for some. Speaking of soft though, a couple of things have actually got me mulling over the modern preoccupation with softness when it comes to wool. As my focus has mostly been on sewing due to the RSI, I've been working with a range of fabrics and thinking about how we describe them. When fabric shops and sewers talk about cloth, soft is not really the first adjective that comes to mind. We might talk about drape or how fabric has a stable hand, how it has a textured weave or a silky feel, how it's smooth or crisp. These are all descriptions that speak to how the material is likely to perform and what type of projects and techniques it lends itself to. Secondly, why is scratchy or prickly only ever talked about in the context of wool? I recently had an infuriating reminder of how scratchy synthetic fabrics can be. I'm increasingly struggling to put up with tights, which have been a mainstay in my wardrobe for decades. I've always found nylon tights uncomfortable, but in recent months my tolerance seems to have gone down as tights are leaving my shins and calves red raw. I'll admit the central heating has definitely been on longer this year due to the appalling spring we've had. And months of Covid restrictions meant that meeting up with friends happened on long cold walks with nail-biting easterly winds. But still, wool has never caused the degree of irritation I'm experiencing from tights. And surely I can't be the only woman who has stoically tried to put up with bras, even though the polyester nylon mix feels like barbed wire. Anyway, back to my black lacy hose. Once I had switched to the pit wool, I made swift progress. I even rattled through about 20 centimetres or 8 inches of 2x2 two two rib. I decided to double the rib section so I had a nice long double cuff to keep the socks up. I've almost finished the second sock now. Obviously too late for this year as summer has arrived with a vengeance. But I'm looking forward to wearing them in the autumn because based on wearing the finished sock around the house I love the comforting coziness of the pip wool against my leg and I reckon I will really appreciate this on cold walks later in the year. I will definitely knit this pattern again. It's very clearly written 
accommodates three foot widths and is highly customizable to suit different lengths and shapes of legs. And of course, I'm already thinking about other sock combinations for future high twist foot cozy calf socks. One of the things I've realized about this approach to sock knitting is that it's a really useful way to use up the 40 grams of sock wool that I typically have left after knitting a pair of short socks. And given the difficulties in tracking down dark brown wool for socks, I may even try dyeing some of my favourite nylon free wool combinations to achieve some deep chocolate coloured knee-high socks as part of Operation Chilled Lane. As I mentioned earlier, I've been doing a fair amount of sewing recently. A lot of this sewing has focused on small, rather mundane projects that were driven by practical needs. I held off podcasting for a while as I thought, who wants to hear about such makes? But actually, haven't practical, down-to-earth projects formed the backbone of human making activity since the beginning of time? The frocks and cardigans obviously make for much more interesting photos, but perhaps we makers should give as much limelight to the ordinary, functional projects. Aren't they just as much the product of the skills we've developed? And isn't being able to meet practical needs through our own craftsmanship as much a sign of agency and empowerment as running up a cute dress or an impressive coat? So here we go. In light of my recent falling out with tights, I decided to tackle leggings. I do own several pairs of ready-to-wear leggings. I already use them sometimes as tights, as PJ bottoms or whilst doing yoga stretches, and then I relegate them to studio or gardening wear once they get too tatty and threadbare, which seems to have happened increasingly quickly with each pair I've bought. As leggings will be taking over from tights going forward, I thought it would be worthwhile making some that A actually fit my body and B with a better quality of cotton jersey in the hope that they last a bit longer. I know I mentioned last episode that I don't particularly enjoy working with stretch fabrics, but when I have a specific goal in mind, I can be quite dogged in tackling skills I may not favour. I used the Della legging pattern by a company called Made My Wardrobe, as I've had good results with their patterns in the past. This pattern is one of five jersey garments the company brought out last year, recognising that in Covid times a lot of people are resorting to comfort and cosiness. The high-waisted nature of the leggings definitely appeal to me, as I wear my leggings when bending over the pottery wheel in a cold studio or crouching while gardening, so I really can't be doing with garments that let drafts up my back. This pattern comes in sizes UK 6 to 24, which covers a hip range from 86 to 134 centimetres, or approximately 33 to 53 inches. It's definitely suitable for beginners, as the design is based on a single pattern piece, can be sewn on a regular sewing machine as well as an overlocker or serger, and involves a very simple but effective way of attaching the waist elastic. Also, As Lydia, the founder of Made My Wardrobe, has not been able to run workshops due to COVID restrictions, she has uploaded video tutorials that walk you through the process of making the company's garments. For this pattern, I used organic cotton that I bought from the pattern company, which had about 6-8% lycra, so it had good stretch in both directions. At £12 a metre, it's obviously more expensive than a polyester jersey, but that's actually a very reasonable price for an organic cotton. A 
apart from that, all I needed was some four centimeter or one and a half inch elastic for the waist, which I already had in my sewing supplies. I'm hardly the world's fastest sewer, but these leggings came together in no time at all on my pretty basic sewing machine. The only thing I would advise if you're using a sewing machine rather than an overlocker is to use a walking foot. Lydia didn't mention this on her tutorial as she uses a sewing machine that has an inbuilt dual feed system, but a walking foot makes sewing jersey a lot easier. This foot is more expensive than, say, an invisible zip or blind hem foot, but it's definitely worth the money. It has something that looks like plastic feed dogs that point down towards the fabric and help to feed the jersey through more evenly. And it's not just useful for jersey. I also use it to sew bulkier fabrics like wool and corduroy for the same reason. My first pair of leggings is definitely a success. Not perfect, but a much better fit than my shop-bought ones. Being a curious type, I was intrigued to see why, so I took the scissors to a ratty pair of studio leggings that had long since perished at the inside thigh. I cut the seams open and laid out the fabric to compare it to the Della leggings pattern piece, and the difference was quite remarkable. Both pattern pieces allowed for more fabric around the backside than the stomach, but looking at the legs, the ready-to-wear ones looked pretty much the way a child would draw leggings, with a straight line that tapered down diagonally to the ankle. By contrast, in the Made My Wardrobe pattern, there was a curve that tapered in at different rates in different parts of the leg, which makes much more sense. It's no wonder that I was regularly wearing through my leggings at the thighs, as there was just not enough fabric around the thighs and too much around the calves. This admittedly destructive exercise was very illuminating and will inform what tweaks I make for my next pair. As I have short legs, I need to take about two and a half inches off the leggings so they don't concertina around the ankles. But I'll distribute that across different parts of the leggings so I have the right proportion of width to length of fabric in the right parts of my legs. In practice, this means I will probably take about an inch off the lower thigh and then an inch and a half about mid-calf. For completeness, this pattern costs £12.50 for a PDF version or 15 for a hard copy. This might seem a bit toppy for such a simple pattern, but the pattern includes two further variations, short shorts and cycling shorts. I probably won't make the really short version, although I can see that they would work as undies if that's a style you like, but I will absolutely make the cycling shorts. Not for use on a bicycle, but rather as a summer layer under dresses to avoid uncomfortable chafing. And if you like Capri length leggings, I'm sure this pattern could be adapted for that too. The second sign project I'd like to share was also driven by practicality. Until very recently, the weather has been truly grotty in the UK. Chilly, wet and barely a hint of sun. This meant that upon leaving the swimming pool, I would just pull on one of my woolly hats to keep my damp hair covered, because I've never shaken off my mother's warning about not going out with uncovered wet hair. However, now summer has arrived, I need a more appropriate hat to keep my hair covered, but also to protect me from the rays of the sun. I do have a straw hat that I made years ago, but it's a proper blocked and wired hat that doesn't fit in the swimming pool lockers. I therefore set about making myself a cloth hat that I can stuff in my swimming bag. 
I use the free bucket hat pattern from Merchant and Mills, which can be made in sturdy cotton, an interfaced linen, or waxed cotton for a showerproof version. The gender-neutral design consists of a very simple, minimally tapered crown and a compact brim, which is reinforced by concentric circles of stitching. The hat comes in three sizes, with a circumference from 57.5 to 61.5 centimetres, or about 22.5 inches to 24 inches, which is a decent adult range in terms of hats. People with very small heads may struggle slightly, but due to its design and the differentials between the hat sizes, it's a pretty easy and forgiving pattern to grade. The hat's design also means that it's very fabric efficient, with the crown sides and rim consisting of two halves. This makes it an excellent project for leftovers, and my scrap box came up trumps. I had enough cutouts left from some brown linen I'd used for a skirt to make both the hat exterior and lining. As linen is less structured and stable than heavy cottons, I needed to reinforce the outer pieces. The pattern presumes any reinforcing will involve fusible interfacing, but I avoid this material, partly because I don't like using anything synthetic, but mostly because it's about as useful as a chocolate teapot at stabilising or reinforcing linen. Instead, I used some calico that I had harvested from the toile of a coat and stitched it to the outer crown pieces with concentric circles. My lines weren't perfectly parallel by any means, but dark fabric and thread hide a multitude of sins. For the brim, I just tacked the calico to the linen and then followed the reinforcement step as specified. The trickiest part of the project was attaching the top of the crown to the sides of the crown and also attaching the brim to the crown, as these steps involve easing convex curved pieces into a concave shape. I found that the easiest way to do this was to draw the stitching line on the cylindrical crown walls and pin through from those walls to the crown top and rim respectively, and then to stitch very slowly with the crown walls facing up on the sewing machine. This project is classified as an intermediate project, which is probably due to this step, but I reckon that if you take it slowly and follow the instructions to the letter, it's quite accessible. I will definitely use this pattern again, with a few tweaks. The design is pretty compact. Think the line of a cloche rather than a chorby. I added 1.5 centimetres or 5 eighths of an inch to the rim to provide a bit more protection from the sun. But next time I make it, I will widen the rim more, but also make the outer circumference more flared with a couple of slash and spreads to give it more of a sun hat shape. Next time I will also do the final step of top stitching the outer crown at the brim by hand so I think this will produce a neater finish both on the exterior and on the inside. I might also line the lower inch of the crown with a circular bias strip of buckram or tarlatan, both stiffened woven fabrics used in millinery, just to get a more defined transition from crown to rim. But apart from these minor changes, I'm very pleased with my quick, practical, waist-based hat that also happens to look quite cute. As my legs have been red raw due to the scratchiness of tights over the long cold winter months, I decided to up my moisturising game. In particular, I wanted some kind of moisturiser I could use after my swims to rehydrate my leg after showering down at the pool, and a spot of out-of-season pruning provided just the focus for a toiletry concoction. 
You might think that with my interest in natural ingredients and materials, as well as my making instinct, that I would regularly brew up toiletry concoctions. But you'd be wrong. Not because I'm a slave to commercial lotions and potions, but rather because most of my toiletries are ingredients in their minimally processed form. Last year, I dipped my toe into making some simple soap, but apart from soap, my toiletries mostly consist of apricot kernel oil for moisturising, witch hazel to soothe the skin, and pinhead oatmeal as an occasional scrub, none of which involve any making. So why the decision to make a moisturising concoction? I could, of course, take my glass bottle of oil with me when I go swimming, but knowing how clumsy and absent-minded I can be, I didn't fancy it breaking or the pump working itself loose in my backpack. I therefore thought I'd make a moisturising bar, which is less likely to cause havoc if it should break in my bag. The recipe for the bar was incredibly simple and involved three or three and a half ingredients. Equal parts of liquid oil, a butter and beeswax, with the addition of a few drops of an essential oil. Rather than use a fragrant essential oil, I took a slightly different approach. In my preparations for the gardening season, I decided to prune our sage. It was probably not the ideal time to prune the plant, but it was looking incredibly straggly and woody, and as sage is so hardy, I just decided to go for it. And judging from the regrowth, I don't think I did too much harm. I picked the fresh new leaves off my pruning and steeped them in a jar of olive oil that I left on the sunniest windowsill for three weeks. The Latin name for sage is salvia and it has for centuries been used for its medicinal healing properties. So I reckoned that sage infused olive oil would be a reasonable ingredient in a moisturising bar. For the butter I used shea butter as I've used it in the past without any allergic reactions. An important consideration with any concoction. I put the ingredients in a Pyrex bowl, which I set over a saucepan of simmering water to dissolve the butter and the wax. Once everything was dissolved and blended, I poured the mix into small silicon cake moulds and quickly plunged the bowl and spoon into hot soapy water to wash them out as soon as possible before they set. Then I let the mixture cool entirely before popping the bars out of the moulds. 125 grams or approximately 4 ounces of each ingredient produced 5 hand-sized round moisturising bars that can live in the fridge until I need them. I've wrapped the bar that's in use in a square of baking parchment for now, pending the emptying of my tin of farmer's hand cream. This is one of the few commercial toiletries I use, and I do so because it's particularly good as a barrier cream before pottery. After the rinse down at poolside, I simply warm the bar up between my hands, enough to soften it a little, then rub some of the lotion into my calves and shin, and wrap the bar up again. As this moisturiser is not as oily or greasy as my regular apricot kernel oil, it means my clothes don't get stained or my quick change to get out of the pool as soon as possible. And I'm glad to say that between ditching the tights and careful regular moisturising, the raw skin on my legs is starting to heal. Well, having started with salvia and ending up with it, I think that's probably a good place to finish this episode. As always, I love hearing about what you're making, whether mundane, slightly random or decidedly functional. So please do drop a comment either on the show notes or on Instagram. So until next time, I hope you enjoy many pleasant hours of making, whatever your medium may be.